How are we going to start this thing? Okay, here we go. You're first. All right. Um, I am Sarah Hoff, and I am agnostic. And I'm Laura Barclay, a Baptist minister, and we are Bible Bitches, a podcast where we riff on all things biblical, feminist, and pop culture. Uh, today's fun fact is that I totally have a location for where I would go in the event of an end of the world scenario, like a cabin in the woods kind of thing, uh, fresh water, you know, uh, gardens, game, trees for logging, etc. Uh, what about you, Sarah? Do you have a place? I have, I, first of all, I have no place. Second okay. of all, I am a weakling who lives in the middle of a big city who would basically immediately die. I <laughs> like, we get to the end of the block and I would be shot. Like I would be dead. Okay. Well, I am worried about you getting out of LA with all the traffic on like the 110, the 405, the, all that. My actual plan, honestly, my actual plan is, like, if it does get to that extreme, I want to get an electric scooter and then um, just take the L.A. River, like, follow it down. What I really think is the only way I would get out is if I, like, knew somebody who knew how to fly a plane and could charter a jet. Oh. Have you, oh, I guess you've been watching uh, American Horror Story then. No. No, never mind. Okay. Well, but, you're prophetic. <laughs> 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 yeah, you were. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know because I I think that it would escalate to like Mad Max level crazy pants. Yeah, very very quickly. I re- I mean, do you remember the L.A. riots? Yeah, that was I mean, like yeah. immediate. That was totally immediate. So yeah, it would be. So where does the L.A. River go? So um, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't bode well for my plan to go up to the um, mountains it goes down to like it eventually like goes down to the to the um, ocean oh okay well if it gets you out of LA that's pretty good and then yeah. you can get an electric scooter and get out yeah there you go. but see then you still have to go through the whole desert like I think I would have to go I think I would have to go north for quite a long while Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then cut over in Northern California and then go through like, you know, Montana and then down to, through like Kansas. Yeah. You've got to make it. You've got to make it to us. Yeah. It's, it's like that scene in Last Mohicans, like, I will find you. I will find you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to hear from any listeners what your plans are if the end of the world uh, were to happen. Like, where would you go? What would you do? Uh, I'd be very interested because we're doing uh, uh, our second ever two-parter today. And I'm really pumped about this. Our first two-parter was Badass Bitches of the Old and New Testaments, which was awesome. And if you haven't given that a listen yet, just scooch on back scroll on back and do so because it's a hoot and a holler let me tell you um (laughs) today we are talking about the apocalypse and pop culture and there's a lot to cram in there oh my god there's so much and you know obviously we're going to be relating this back to i don't know if you've heard of it there's this little book like wedged into the very back of the bible it's called revelation Uh, it's probably you probably haven't heard of it just kidding. Everybody has because it's like the most terrifying thing that anybody talks about in Christianity. Not, not revelation. 
<laughs> the revelation is how I came to like accept my impending doom and death at like the age of eight. Hmm. Um, anyways, you're doing it right. It's the last book. It reads, it reads like a David Lynch fever dream. And in this two-parter, we are specifically dealing with a little bit of history in the book of Revelation or on the book of Revelation, the conceptualization of the apocalypse and, and its effect on pop culture. This is because, y'all, Revelation is insane. It is so intense and it's had such a crazy impact on Western culture. And I like we we could probably spend a full year talking about Revelation and still be able to talk more about it. Yeah. We've we've had to strongly narrow because yeah. there's scrolls, there's bowls, there's dragons, whores, mm-hmm. antichrists, you name it. Like it's got it. So there- we will- what? There are horsemen. Horsemen. Pestilence. pestilence rivers of blood. It's it's got everything. It's, it's really it's 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 LA's hottest club. <laughs> That's true. Um, LA's hottest club is all about having scrolls, <laughs> bowls, and rivers of blood. <laughs> well, bowls for sure. That sounds lit. Anyway, sorry. So uh, we'll most likely revisit other aspects of Revelation in the future. Like, tweet us your faves, your, your list of greatest hits, because we'll put them down for the future. Uh, but for now, let's get, let's get started. Let's dig right in. Um, so we're using David Barr's reading the book of Revelation for our history of Revelation, um, which we used in our New Testament class with uh, Dr. Diane Lipset at Wake Div. Um, massive shout out to a fantastic professor who um, she's now teaching at Salem College and just killing it. Love her. We um, love you, Dan. We love you. So uh, Revelation was written in the first century between 65 and 95 CE by a man calling himself John of Patmos. And it can be divided into three parts. Part one, John encountering a majestic human figure while in the spirit on the island of Patmos. Um, part two, the second story, uh, shows John ascending into heaven where he witnesses a celebration around God's throne. And then part three, cosmic war waged on earth between forces of good and evil. There's coded references about a city on a hill, Babylon, AKA Rome. Um, it's a symbolic, Babylon was a symbolic name for Rome because it was kind of like thought of as this evil kingdom. And so it was like a, a code, a safe code language for talking about Rome. And like, I feel like Rome official, Rome's officials had to be real dumb if it was like city on seven hills named uh, Babylon, right? <laughs> and they were like, can't be Rome, keep on moving. Uh, so part this part three uh, of this cosmic war part becomes the focus of our podcast and later predictions on the apocalypse. Which, by the way, apocalypse literally just means an uncovering in ancient Greek. Yeah. So, okay. A generation after Revelation is written, commentary from theologians on this book began to be recorded. Eusebius, a bishop and favorite of the first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine, provides the first recorded (laughs) sweet burn to our knowledge on any other scholar. 
regarding revelations when he uh, states, <laughs> Papaya says that after the resurrection of the dead, there will be a period of a thousand years when G when Christ's kingdom will be set up on the earth in material form. I suppose he got these notions by misinterpreting the apostolic accounts and failing to grasp what they had said in mystic and symbolic language, for he seems to have been a man of very small intelligence to judge from his books. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> so, so anyways already there's this argument about literalism versus mysticism and in interpretations in the third century i love ancient birds this is great <laughs> oh reggie you seem to be a man of very small intelligence yes um and that outbreak of kind of material thinking uh that he's burning there that eusebius is burning papias uh or papias we don't know uh about that there's an outbreak of that uh, in the second century, and that leads to Melito of Sardis, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus, early church figures, thinking Jesus would literally return to earth and reign for up to a thousand years. Some, like Origen and Eusebius, believed revelation was largely symbolic, but these views of literalism versus symbolism and those views tended to shift depending on if Christians were in power or not in power. Well, yeah, it's... <laughs> super convenient to be able to call someone a whore and an antichrist and point to a book of the Bible to back it up. We see a shift later on. Sarah, you're a whore. So says Hezekiah one. <laughs> right? right? Hezekiah, come here and let me show you what a real whore is. Just kidding. <laughs> Sick burn, Sarah. I know. It's, it's actually just a burn on myself. <laughs> level bird i like it <laughs> <laughs> i'm not good at shit talking guys anyways we see a shift later on augustine thought there would be a thousand years between the first and the second coming around 1000 ce which allowed for a delay and an explanation as to why jesus had not returned to earth and a man named jukayim of flora 12 1200 CE, took Augustine's view and adapted it. He said he was living in a chaotic time of crusades and conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and Pope and went more in depth with the prophecy, claiming that the millennium of the church was at an end and the age of spirit monasticism was at hand. He also correlated the different symbolic events and revelations with the actual with actual historical people, with different heads of the beast being different rulers like false popes, Muslim rulers, emperors, that kind of thing. And later, Protestants during the Reformation would equate this beast with the Vatican or the Pope. And this predictive or prophetic view of revelation gained real traction in the 19th century, being a favorite among fundamentalist Christians. It is not a favorite of academics who catalog all the failed attempts at predicting the end of the world and can read this uh, symbolism in Revelation within its context, attempting to ask, hey, why was it written? When was it written? And for whom was it written? I love, so one of the things that I like love about fundamentalist Christianity is that they're always trying to predict the date and like it explicitly states, if they're going to take the Bible literally, it explicitly states that like no one will know the date. So right. they're like, they're, they're biting themselves in the ass by doing this. Like, right. I feel like if they really wanted this to come about, instead of like pushing it forward, they would all just like forget about it. 
You know, right. I mean? they feel like none of us know, none of us know, none of us know, right? Don't even they, think about it. Don't even think about don't it. Think about it. Don't do right because I, I really wish what biblical literists would realize is that they don't take the Bible literally. It's only the parts that they want to take literally, right? They're not, you know, not eating shellfish or, uh, you know, they're predicting the end of the world, even though it says don't do that. Like they're, they're everybody has their everyone, regardless of whether, whether or not you think you're a biblical literalist, or if you're absolutely not like me, I think that it's, you know, the Bible was written by a, a whole lot of different people over a long period of time. And they were writing sort of about their relationship with God. They have different opinions. And sometimes those opinions conflict and we've got to interpret them. I still elevate some texts over others. Everyone does it. Everyone does it. Let's just own it, people. <laughs> back on track, back on track. And we continue oh. to see revelation interpreted in predictive ways people wondering who the antichrist is that will bring about our doom perhaps the most famous series on this is the left behind books by a one tim lahaye who tortured both laura and i during our high school years um, and saw the advent of a truly frightening version of kurt cameron in the subsequent films frightening or majestic <laughs> oh my god this was taught as truth in oh. uh Right. Was uh, that, that's a, Tim LaHaye didn't physically torture us, but uh, his books did in that they were taught as fact, basically. In, in my So I would, I would actually like going back to our interpersonal history, I would like to t make a clarifying point. I think when we talk about the left behind series, I am referencing the 1970s trilogy left behind. Oh, right. And I, I am referencing the ones that came out in the nineties. Yeah. So yeah. the 1970s ones, yes, we watched those in class and our Bible teacher was like, this is really going to happen, guys. There's this whole guillotine scene that was very frightening. Yeah. Whereas uh, we were like referencing the Kirk Cameron version. So yeah. fun times. Was Kirk Cameron in the Omega Code? I don't remember. I actively tried to block this out because my, so my parents were not like fundamentalists and they like, basically I would come home and like make fun of this stuff and then we would go see secular movies. So, uh, yeah. Um, and this is, re this is reason number like 567 why Laura is more adjusted than I am. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that my parents let me vent about this stuff. Like, they were like, that sounds crazy. Like they were conservative, but they were old school conservative. They were like, that sounds newfangled and weird. So <laughs> that's the great thing about living near Appalachia is that like some of that hadn't even hit us yet. So we were like driving in to go to school and they were like, that sounds newfangled. Let's go, let's go watch that new Keanu Reeves film. Yes, let's do it. Um, it's never a bad idea, <laughs> but we want to focus on how this has affected secular cinema. I found a very interesting thesis on the interwebs by a one Matthew Leggett from the University of Winchester in the UK called You Gotta Keep the Faith, Making Sense of Disaster in Post 9-11 Apocalyptic Cinema. And he posits that he uncovers an increased investment in the power of faith in popular American disaster movies after 9-11. He cites the Book of Eli, Signs, The Road uh, as these films, and such films, he argues, uh, interrogate the role that faith plays in making meaning from disaster in ways rarely seen in their immediate precursors, like in the 90s, those films being Independence Day, Armageddon, and Godzilla. Do you think that's true, Sarah? So... 
So I say maybe. First of all, I just want to preface this with there are a ton of movies about the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And some of the, like most of them are like quote unquote secular. I hate using the word word secular. I want to just say like normal. Um, But like, I think think it's helpful because we're talking about religious and secular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just not religious. Yeah. But so, but in, and then also when we're talking about religious, we're talking about specifically like Christian religion, mm-hmm. um, which I think is an important caveat because yes. while there are apocalypses in other religions, what the West has seemed to really latch onto is this Christian notion of apocalypticism. Totally. Um, and and so I sort of, what I was reading, and there's, again, there's a ton, and it's so deep that it's just kind of like you just grasp onto one thread and then try to dissect that in like a moment. Um, it's kind of how I did. So I kind of like really prioritized the idea of like globalization. So before the 1950s, there were very, 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 very few apocalyptic films. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Film cinema hadn't really been a thing, um, you know. It was still sort of like getting at sea legs, that kind of thing. Um, when did cinema, like, when did movies actually start? Like the thirties? Uh, well, there were silent films like in the early nineteen hundreds, but yeah, I, like, the, I feel like the twenties ish. I feel like yeah. Well, and even before that, like yeah. in the early, like the the nineteen early, like 1900s. the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, I think it was more like the the first century or the first decade of the 1900s. But then, but you know, we get talkies or whatever in like the 1930s. Yeah. And so, like, I think from there you kind of slowly see the genres expanding. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember going back and watching one of the first horror films. What is? It's like a vampire film, Nosferatu, and then you kind of see it. Like, there's a lot of German expressionism in that. Uh, like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But these are not like apocalyptic films, right? They're more like there is this one scary thing and uh, people are acting out their fears by confronting that one scary thing, right? Apocalyptic films are not a thing, I think, that gained traction early on. Right. What I'm doing basically is locating the advent of the popularity of apocalyptic films in globalization, Um, because it's really like if you go look at the list of you know films on the wikipedia page each decade the list grows and grows so my theory based on what i've read this isn't like my theory um is that because it's like in the 1950s this is post-world war ii there's been the atomic bomb there is now a um an ability to access international news in a more kind of regular way. It's not being like shipped over on a boat kind of deal that that allows people in the West to understand themselves in a more global context and also understand the threat to their life in a more global context. Cause this is right after the atomic bomb and they're, um, and they're still dealing with like the aftermath of it. And so apocalyptic literature really speaks to that kind of fear and that kind of hope for uh, an immediate uh, like a an immediate answer or rectification to the chaos that they're feeling um 
And so that's kind of how I'm locating it. I, there's a lot in that. And then the role of faith seems to be on the rise in, since the 1990s. It does seem like from 1950 to like the 1980s, there are fewer religiously overt movies coming out about the apocalypse. Um, and I don't, re- I don't really know why, but it does seem like in the late 90s. Like I remember going to see the Omega Code with my on a fucking class trip. Um, but it was like that kind of. And then you know, after the Omega Code, Tim LaHaye's um, Left Behind series became a movie and a whole movie franchise starting in 2005, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, it's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. There is an absolute lot. And I think for the rest of this episode that we're going to deal with some of the films before 9-11. And then like the next episode, we'll deal with some of the films after 9-11. And we're going to examine to see if this thesis is kind of true as a trend. Um, We're probably going to end up poking some holes in it, but... Uh, but yeah, let's go from there. Spoiler alert. I know. I can't help myself, Sarah. <laughs> um, shall I kick us off? Mm-hmm. Pre-9-11. Do it. All right. Y'all, Independence Day. Yes, Remember Independence yes. Day? Oh, boy, do I. I love that movie. <laughs> I No lie. This summer it came out. I went and saw it in the theater like three times. Same. Oh my god. It never gets old. Uh, like what Will Smith punches that alien is like, welcome to Earth. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it was like that great mix of like action and comedy. Yeah, and there was that speech like about like we're all gonna yeah. come together because this is Independence Day. Oh my god, it was so good. But like, do you remember? I, I'm pretty sure Randy Quaid dies as a hero. Like he's kind of crazy, but he dies as a hero in this. Which is I think you're right. No, you're right because like he and Will Smith, I think they they're both in spaceships and they go to or like they're both in ships or planes or whatever. Like planes and stuff, and like Randy Quaid like sacrifices himself, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, crazy that Randy here, like Randy Quaid, because he ended up kind of going on to be a, like a bit of a, a bit of a nutter. I don't right? know. Like, I don't know. What is he doing now? I have no idea. I like. I feel like I remember some things on Gawker back when Gawker was a thing of him like going on rants and like getting arrested multiple times. So who knows? Who knows? <laughs> like every actor. Like <laughs> every actor. Like he's he just being a Hollywood type. It's cool. It's yeah. Fun. We've got Independence Day. Do you remember Armageddon? I never saw Armageddon. <gasps> really? Okay. No. Oh my god. You are. You're. You're missing out, Sarah. Uh, this is where humankind unites to save the Earth from an asteroid, and it stars Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. And Bruce Willis dies a hero. Peak '90s, right? I mean, oh my God. right? But it's like to save the world. Like Bruce Willis is like, I'm gonna die to save the whole world. Yeah. Like, it's it's all about like the whole world was the priority. Like yeah. so we almost got like global, like a global scale here. We're all coming together. The '90s are like this utopia, right? In terms of, in terms of some of these films, these like yeah, in terms of like the messaging that they're sending. Exactly. Not like in terms of actually what's really going on in the '90s around the world, in terms of the messaging of some of these films. 
Um, there's also 90s apocalyptic films with the government, quote unquote, as a nefarious character like X-Files, Fight the Future. Um, the government blowing up stuff to cover alien shenanigans, basically. And Outbreak, remember that, Jim? Um, that was pretty good with uh, Rene Russo starring scientists fighting a deadly virus the government caused and they are willing to kill the cover up. And the 90s were definitely an era of fear of the government. All the people who grew up under Watergate were writing these as well. Um, they'd also lived through the Iran-Contra affair, which had happened just a few years before in the 90s. So distrust of government was pretty pretty peak, I feel like, at that point. See, I, I kind of... I kind of disagree with you there because I see that angle and they do play that. But remember, X Files, Scully and what's his face were working Scully for the government. Were. Scully and Mulder okay. were working they for the government. Were. However, <laughs> I, did you watch the X Files? No. Okay, I watched every single episode. I am super obsessed, even the new seasons and all the movies. Like rabbit hole. I freaking love. Love the X-Files, y'all. Like, up until a point, and then it went off the rails. But So Mulder and Scully, I think, become almost considered to be sort of like the average American's sort of faith versus, faith, faith versus science uh, angle on what's going on inside the government in terms of our, like, skepticism and our sense of worry and anxiety about what's really going on behind the scenes. So they, yes, they do work for the FBI, but no, I don't think that they're really like part of the system. Like they're not portrayed to be that. So I would say in a way that they are really feeding into that whole distrust of government, that, that that's a huge part of the 90s. Um, so I hear you on that. But in so many of these movies, like um, Independence Day and... Um, I'm blanking on others, Armageddon. The pre-9-11, yeah. Yeah, these pre-9-11 movies. A lot of them, most of them I would even argue, are like they portray the government, even if they do have some like nefarious leanings. Because uh, I, I mean, I think that that's true too, that it's kind of like this idea of like, there are some bad eggs in the government, but at the end, the good eggs prevail kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. the good government officials win the argument and whatever physical force is needed from the government comes through and they are able to save the day. Right. I, and I wonder if I think that's true, but I also think that X-Files is maybe the most prophetic voice in terms of that not being the case. Cause ultimately the suspicion of government wins out and it's really that there's this like shadow government controlling everything and it's not good. So yeah. I think that might be, X-Files in some ways might be the outlier because like, because you're absolutely right. Like Independence Day, Armageddon, it's like all these things are, like the government is virtuous, right? Yeah. Well, and, and like, I would argue that that's the message that they were intentionally trying to yes. put out there, right? Um, mm -hmm. But see, so like now that trope has sort of like largely gone out of vogue after 9-11. It seems like now these post 9-11 films like the apocalyptic ones are portraying the government as actually causing the decline of society or like, you know, ushering it in kind of thing. And you can see that in a lot of movies and TV shows, um, like the purge, for example, mm -hmm. um, 
there's some TV show that I watched recently where like the government released some virus and made everybody zombies kind of deal, you know? Uh, yeah. All like these. a random TV show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And so I think that that's an I think that, isn't that tip, isn't that the premise of The Walking Dead? Like I've, I've watched every season of Walking Dead, but I think that that was basically the premise. Of, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Because I, I know they were working on something at the CDC and like yeah. yada, yada. I can't remember. Um, um, anyways, that was basically my point is that like, yeah. there's a strange shift and, and it reflects, I think that like that shift plus the continual rise in apocalyptic movies, plus a pretty steep shoot up, like a pretty steep, like incline in religious apocalyptic movies starting in the two thousands all point this anxiety, this fear that the population has about the quote-unquote like end of the world or the possibility of the end of the world and a, a real concern that this chaos must mean something yes and so i think like we've covered some of these 90s pre 9-11 apocalyptic films that agree with this dude's thesis right yeah. uh but let me posit another point of view and some films to counter that I think horror has always been a genre that conveys our distrust of other humans, which calls out our fears of destroying one another and the world since really industrial times. Thinking back to Frankenstein the book and movie iterations, one of which was Kenneth Branagh's version in the 90s, where Dr. Frankenstein is the monster who used medical science to create, quote, his monster, but the real monster was himself who decided he could play God, right? Not the, per not the, mo the quote unquote monster he created. And isn't that a danger of our ever increasing knowledge, the power to kill everyone with nuclear bombs uh, or save them with medical advancement, but that power kind of rests in our hands. Yeah. Like these apocalyptic horror films have a way of pointing out in critical times that humans have the capacity for extreme good or evil. And there are a lot of shades of gray in between. And we don't need to worry about any, about any other worldly power to destroy or end things when we're so capable of doing this ourselves. I think that's fair because what you're talking about is, um, you know, kind of, kind of indicative of Independence Day or, or Armageddon. There's this, you know, there's either going to be an asteroid or some aliens coming in, but we don't need that. Yeah. Because, you know, because there's these iterations of horror films. Like, for instance, I want to go back to the year 1968. That's the year that Night of the Living Dead came out. It was groundbreaking. Um, it was the same year Martin Luther King was shot. Uh, had an African-American lead actor. Zombies are taking over, and spoiler alert, at the end, a very non-zombie black man is shot and assumed to be a zombie with his body burned by humans. Roger Ebert stated um, of the theater, quote, the kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl crying across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven, but try to remember, at that age, kids take the events on the screen seriously, and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed, that's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got it alive. It's just over. That's all. Yeah. So, yeah. So that same year, Planet of the Apes came out, and again, spoiler alert, an astronaut played by Charleston Heston 
assuming that he has crash landed on this ape planet, but then it's, oh shit, it's really Earth. And in the end, we had destroyed our whole world with nuclear war and humanity again is its own worst enemy. Well, I mean, let's just keep keeping on. Uh, Godzilla, right? Godzilla. Let's think about that. Um, Godzilla is really symbolizing Mother Earth trying to take back what's hers. The film debuted to Japanese audiences in 1954 with Godzilla being a prehistoric monster awakened after the World War II nuclear bombs are dropped and the monster is reanimated with nuclear energy. So I think some of the films that we've just talked about are taking place after some really intense stuff. So one of the things that I'm seeing, like a like a thread that I keep seeing in these three films where there is that real anxiety and the horror. And then also I, I've noticed this a lot in the kind of like sci-fi novels I've been reading that there's an emphasis on memory that like our memory isn't sustainable for for us living essentially. And so like in these three movies in Godzilla and Planet of the Apes and Night of the Living Dead, each one of these scenarios has a, um, the group that wins out or the group that is frightening is a group that does not remember humanity's past Mm. and has taken over. And so like, it's not just, that humanity is being wiped out. It's that the remembering of humanity is wiped out. And, and then like, this is sort of neither here nor there, but like these other sci-fi books that I've been reading, what redeems humanity in the end of like, at least two of these books that I'm thinking of is that they are able to sort of like pair with another species that can help them to remember to an even greater extent so that they can then sort of like, take on the knowledge of their forefathers and not make those same mistakes again. Oh, wow. That's really, that is amazing. Because, I mean, you think about, you know, anybody who's been to a Holocaust museum, there's such an emphasis on remembrance, right? Like we we have to be witnesses because it could happen again. So part of any sort of justice and restoration looks like remembering and being witness to our past And I think some of the best apocalyptic horror films are ones that you're absolutely right, show that we don't remember. And then the past repeats, it repeats, it repeats, it repeats. And that's a horrifying image of of having that happen over and over and over again. And to kind of hit on that, like something that's a little bit horrifying in my own history, whenever I first got to college, Um, It was August of 2001, and we were assigned to read Francis Fukuyama's essay, The End of History. And it, it says, quote, what we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. So we were given this to read in like circa August 31st, 2001, as something to actually consider. Are we at the end of history? Is this perfection? Or is there going to be nothing left to write in the history books because conflict is virtually over? That's ridiculous. It kind of completely negates anything about the feminist movement, even in the West, the feminist movement, um, anything that people of color were writing about at the time of violence that was happening against them, it's a very white male kind of perspective of like, oh, it's just perfect, whatever, it's fine. 
And also what was happening in, you know, other continents at that point, like Africa, I don't know, like Rwanda, <laughs> just, just, you know, also in, in uh, Eastern Europe, Bosnia, like there are horrific genocides that are happening along about this time, but it just doesn't matter to people in the West, apparently. So we read this and then we're asked like, what do you think about this? And then we're also given Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. Like, do you think people in the West are coming, but kind of like a critique on Western culture becoming more and more sort of uh, distant and community is more fragmented. And that seemed very realistic and we were arguing for that. You know, that, that sounds like a good critique of Western culture. However, there were some people that argued, hey, end of history. This is, this is perfection. We basically reached it. Two weeks later, 9-11 happens. And then it's like, okay, so clearly the thesis is wrong. We are not at the end of history. Uh, we've just reached kind of a, a, another, another level of conflict. But it's, it's like it took that for white males to realize that we still have conflict. Like, basically all the women and people of color knew that, but the white men were like, mm, we've reached perfection, this is fine. And I wonder, I, I, I wonder, I just hypothesize and wonder if the 90s Armageddon, you know, kind of like, oh, we've all basically united and we're, we're fighting against otherworldly forces at this point. Is this almost uh, naive, right? Like we're not even looking at women, people of color and stuff that are happening outside of our country as legitimate issues. Question. Yes. Like, I don't even know where to begin with that comment by Fukuyama. Like, are you sure, honestly, are you sure that your professor wasn't just trying to, like, troll you guys? Because what he's saying is so fucking absurd and so, like, fully head in the sand, but it's, like, head in the sand and he has on a pair of goggles and blinders and, like, <laughs> you know, like, he, he's, like, not paying attention to anything that's going on. This guy was taken as like super seriously in the late 90s. This guy wrote his initial essay in, in 1989 and wrote a follow-up book on it because it was so popular in 92. And political scientists were taking this seriously. I mean, think about, think about the 90s in terms of, I mean, if you're a woman, you're going to remember vastly different things like, mm -hmm. you know, oh, Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky, um, those kinds of things. <laughs> um, Take back the night. Take back the night. Like, there was a lot of shit going on in the 90s if you're a woman. But if you're a white man, you're just going to be like, oh, it was Clinton. Things were great. So I don't know. I mean, maybe people... Well, and, thought, and he's like, the universalization of Western liberal democracy, like... Oh, right? What? That's not... It's disgusting. He, I know. He, like, had... Did he forget about racism? Oh, no, I think he just kind of rolled that in. Like, I, like this is, it's the worst of white liberalism. Like, it's, it's like, oh, I'm going to take this. And clearly, it's almost like, it's almost like we're going to kind of spread this Western liberal democracy. And that's just what everybody needs to hear. And once everyone embraces it, it's fine. Not well, respecting that everybody has different cultures and ideas about that kind of thing. And like, the just extreme hubris mm -hmm. oh my god what can i also posit though that like, maybe the maybe the apocalyptic films of the 90s had extreme hubris oh well yeah but i mean like but that's what like that's what the film is supposed to do like argue i would say arguably like 
film is supposed to, there are a lot of different things that film can do, but one of the things that film does do, like the big hits, those blockbusters, they're supposed to make you feel good. And they're, so you're supposed to come out of there not conflicted, but feeling like, fuck yeah, that was great. Yeah. You know, I feel like energized and like it's tapped into my emotions, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's like the thing that Pixar does really, really well. Right. You want to see something that's all of humanity uniting because that's not what we're doing right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we poked, we've, poked a couple, we've, we've booped a couple holes in these thesis. thesis. Um, and I'm going to say that we pick up next time with post 9-11 horror films and see if, if this checks out. Um, listener mail. Ooh, I've got some, Sarah. Ooh, got some. Okay, I've got a couple, a couple of things I want to share. Uh, if I can figure out how to use, use my screen phone. <laughs> Laura still has a Nokia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Aaron Smith uh, at Aaron Doodles, right? Who does some of our artwork? He had he had a hot take on our circumcision kind of discussion with the Zipporah episode, and this was really interesting. He says there are a lot of misconceptions about circumcision or the Western understanding of it. Done properly and carefully, the removal of the foreskin doesn't decrease sensation during sex and isn't more hygienic than not being circumcised. That said, other than for religious reasons, there's no medical need for it. The practice among Gentile families in the West is largely based on a misconception that it's cleaner and more hygienic. There are plenty of reasons to leave the foreskin intact, the largest being it's an invasive and potentially risky procedure typically performed on males too young to give consent. Um, yeah. So thanks at Aaron Doodles for providing that. And, (laughs) uh, Scott Looney, uh, was being real clever on the Twitters Mm -hmm. at a Scott mess. We had tweeted out talking about Zipporah and how the story of Zipporah involved male circumcision. And we talked about it being a choice, a religion, and a ritual. And what did it mean then? What did it mean now? Unfortunately, this episode, or perhaps fortuitously, got released uh, the week that Stormy Daniels compared Donald Trump's penis to uh, Toad from the Mario and Luigi universe, right? The Mario Kart universe, (laughs) which began to trend on... (laughs) on Twitter. So Scott decided to reply to us and say, uh, he personally thinks that, that, that circumcision is how you go from Koopa Troopa to Toad. Hey, uh, <laughs> Thank you at a Scott mess. Your Twitter handle is very appropriately named. <laughs> we, we enjoy your sassy sass tweets. <laughs> So if you ended up here and you're like, how am I listening to you? I don't understand the technologies. Go to SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher and subscribe to listen to us. And you guys can find us at Bible Bitches on Twitter, at our Bible Bitches fan page on Facebook, or you can always email us at our Gmail account, which is Bible Betches, B-E-T-C-H-E-S at gmail.com. Um, of course, we want to give a huge thanks to um, Engaged Gaze, G-A-Z-E, their website for hosting our podcast. They're amazing and 
John and Marcy are also doing a really cool podcast on um, theology and like their own like apocalyptic media. So right now they're doing a whole thing on the purge. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, I think is their handle. Yeah. Pop theologians. And um, also a huge shout out to at Aaron Doodles. Thank you so much for doing our artwork. You're amazing. And of course, at Yo Eves, your new single, your new album is fantastic. And it slaps, y'all. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Really slaps. That's what the kids are saying. <laughs> I'm going to start saying that. It yeah. slaps. <laughs> um, also, if you want to toss us uh, a few dollars for keeping you informed about what the kids are saying these days. Uh, you can find us on our Patreon page and you can become an honorary Bible bitch. How do they find us on Patreon? Patreon.com backslash Bible bitches podcast. Um, nice. Or you can just email me directly and I will help you out. My email address is sarahehoff at gmail.com or biblebetches at gmail.com. Yeah. Or slide into our DMs on Twitter. It's cool. We'll get you hooked up. And also, you can get your own uh, Bible Bitches koozie because we've got those. That's a thing. Whenever you say slide into DM, it just sounds so sexual. It's like <laughs> baseball and sex. Slide into one DMs. That made it sound way less sexual, actually. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it sound like... And like an 80s song? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, like a like a really lame 80s song. So have fun with that, y'all. We will be back next time with part two of this with <laughs> 9-11 uh, films. So join us next time. We love you. Bye. Bye.